You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. Slow Theology, A.J. and E.J., we're here. Um, I, I, get, I get to pick today's topic. In fact, E.J. and I, we, we uh, try our best. This is actually a goal for our listener. We try our best to talk about things that um, actually matter. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I think I think I think if you and I maybe had our way, there would be times we would have conversations about um, really abs- ridiculously speculative and uh, completely unnecessary topics. But for the purpose of our audience, who we know a lot of, uh, kind of the, the kind of people that listen, we want to keep things really like real life sort of stuff. Yeah. And the the topic that I um, have really wanted to talk about for quite some time is. Um, is is actually the issue of of contentment and, and the idea of um, being content with what God has made known about Himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a, a reader of the monastic period. I love reading the early church mothers and fathers and the period that came after it, the desert mothers and mothers and fathers. And there's there's a I'm writing a, a an academic article right now in which I deal with the topic of. Um, uh, acedia, which is the idea of like spiritual lethargy and sort of right. losing desire about God. And, and, and the research for this book have been really struck at how many times uh, the desert mothers and fathers, the early church fathers, have a negative approach towards what they often called over curiosity. Mm-hmm. St. Uh, Augustine in one of his uh, earlier books writes about what he calls the dark wine of curiosity. And it's this, this idea that. of like the, the person that um, exhibits not like a holy curiosity, but like a, a, a weird kind of over curiosity that desires to know more than one should know. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a pretty um, studious fellow, as, as are you. And I, I can find in myself this almost engine of discontent where I'm always wanting more. I'm always wanting more info, more footnotes, more books, more texts, more sermons. I mean, I I probably am a content glutton. I probably (laughs) read and listen to too much. And that's not a point of pride. That's actually more of a confession than anything else. And behind it is, I think, on one level, a healthy curiosity. I love to learn. But there is also a level of over curiosity, an unhealthy kind of scrupulosity that I want to know more than maybe I should. And sometimes I want to know more for the wrong reasons that right. I want to learn because I want to sound smart or because I uh, want to be perceived as uh, you, you, we could, we can fill in the dots there, but this, this sense of over curiosity and, and I'm struck that through the history of the church, um, there has been a really beautiful doctrine or, or perspective towards the Bible that simply goes by the title, the sufficiency of the Bible. Um, yeah. What are the characteristics of the Bible? You could think of a bunch. The Bible's authoritative. The Bible's inspired. Uh, the Bible is necessary. There are a lot of characteristics of the Bible. But one of the, I think, interesting uh, doctrines that the church has believed for, for 2,000 years is the idea that the Bible is enough. Yeah, I, and I take this idea that I have of over curiosity of wanting more than I should have, and the idea that the Bible is enough, and they don't really fit together, right. because I I wish the Bible said more than it did. 
I'm always wanting more than the Bible has to offer. Now, is that my fault or the Bible's fault? And the, and the doctrine of the sufficiency of scriptures says, actually, it's my fault that right. I'm wanting more than God is willing to give. Over curiosity. Is that a thing, Nijay? Have you walked through that? Well, you know, it, it, it's a lot of it is what we think the Bible is. And if the Bible is, um, you know, uh, a textbook on everything in the universe, mm. um, then it falls far short. Yeah. Right. And and so we're going to ask it all kinds of questions about AI or about life on other planets. <laughs> and it's not going to answer those questions. And then we're going to be disappointed. And so the, the doctrine of sufficiency of scripture says, you know, I, I think a lot of Christians don't really know how the Bible got packaged to the way it did. Mm-hmm. And they sort of assume there's some sort of, you know, meeting that happened in the second century or the third century or the fourth century where, you know, God just sort of shouted, you know, like he did on Mount Sinai and just said, okay, here are all the books that should go in the Bible. Yes. It really didn't happen that way. It was almost a kind of consensus on what is holy mm-hmm. as different bishops and theologians and pastors started to say, what should we focus on? What are we willing to die for? You know, what, you know, what, what is sacred? Um, and when they landed on the books, they weren't looking for a certain number. They didn't get to a magical number. It was just sort of like, okay, that's it. Mm. Um, I think this is a good chance to introduce something that I do with my students where I talk about different approaches to how to use the Bible. And so one approach I've already mentioned, which is I think is really bad, is to treat it as an encyclopedia of everything. Mm-hmm. And and then you're going to not know what to do in most situations. But N.T. Wright has a really clever approach that doesn't answer all your questions about the Bible, but it does set you in the right direction. He says, imagine that we discover a brand, uh, we discover a, a Shakespearean play that is from William Shakespeare, but hasn't been known before. Like someone did some digging uh, and they discovered this in some archive and they open it up, they read it and they're excited, but they realize that it has five acts and we're missing the fifth act. Mm. So we say to each other, okay, this is Shakespeare. It's amazing. (laughs) We've never seen this before. It deserves to be performed. But how are we going to do that without a fifth act? Well, you have a few options. You can do it without a fifth act, but nobody wants, you know, that kind of ending. So this group that comes together says, we're actually going to create a fifth act. And we're not going to be able to create the exact same fifth act that William Shakespeare had, but we want to be faithful in the way we produce a fifth act. And Wright says, so how do you do that? You get artists, historians, archaeologists, maybe, and you get Shakespeare experts and you get, you know, drama experts and you put them together. And they spend hours upon hours just studying those first four acts. Understand the characters, understand the trajectory of the plot, understanding the times, understanding the way Shakespeare works. And then what they're doing in that fifth act is improvising. Yes. Right? But it is 
talented or faithful improvising. We're choosing people who are good at this, but their primary responsibility is to understand the four acts, not to repeat the fourth act or the third act, but to extrapolate outward to create a faithful, creative, new fifth act. So you see where I'm going here, AJ. So Wright says, the church age after the Bible is the age of the fifth act. And the Bible is our first four acts. Mm -hmm. So the Bible tells a story that hasn't ended yet. And we're creating the ending, whether you lived in the second century, the 10th century, or the 21st century, we are the living church living out the fifth act. When we read scripture, Wright says, our job isn't to parrot or copy slavishly or simplistically what's going on in the Bible. It's to understand the story as it's unfolding and live faithfully the rest of the story. I love that because the Bible's given to us, in a sense, incomplete. Now, of course, it's sufficient. Of course, it is fully divine revelation, but there's a dot, 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 right, with the Bible. And then there's lights, camera, action, AJ, go. And we live out the fifth act. When we look at it that way, that was the first thing I thought of when you said, is it a problem to know too much? It's, It's a problem to not recognize that the Bible calls us to faithful living in the unknowing. That's that's what Wright's point is, I think. Yes. Okay. So, for example, I think I suspect this is actually much more practical than 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 anything. And that is, you raised uh, artificial intelligence. Okay. So, I would love. It would be yep. the coolest thing for somebody to write. Imagine some PhD student is like, I'm going to go write a theology of artificial intelligence. What would right. Paul say right. about Chat GPT? Right. Would what what would what would John's theology of right. um, artificial People are doing this work. Yeah. No, it's super interesting. The only problem is there's like nothing in the Bible about these things. I mean, you, 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 yeah. when I say nothing in the Bible about directly AI, I mean, your concordance isn't going to find chat GPT um, really anywhere. And so the Bible doesn't head on direct directly deal with artificial intelligence. So there's this like, we live in this moment where there's this, this reality that scripture doesn't speak about. Yet we have right, the four right. acts of scripture to know how, yep. okay, based on these four acts that we have, these of, of Shakespeare's, this mythic play, based on these yeah. four acts, we know some things about the kind of way that God would respond to this sort of stuff in the Absolutely. dot, 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 in, in, the, yeah. in the moment in time. So that actually, in a, in a lot of ways, simultaneously requires that I'm really familiar with the first four acts. Exactly. I actually need to I need to throw my mind and heart into these acts and know them intimately. Yep. But it also invites me to the realm of God's creativity. That God invites me to be creative about things uh, that scripture doesn't directly speak about. Now there are things that God directly speaks about. I mean we could we could think of, you know, a countless number of issues that there is no dot dot dot. God has spoken about these particular issues, loving your neighbor, um, you know, ethics, love but we could go on about these sort of sort of mentions, but the dot 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 there's a lot of them. Like yeah. AI, I would love for the Bible to directly address the existence of aliens. Is weed a good or an, a bad? It is does God desire me to eat as much bacon as I do? I would love cloning. Yep. I mean, yeah. No, there's so many things. The dot 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 that 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 we just 
God, God does not necessarily directly speak to, but we know God's character from the other four chapters. Is that kind of what, on a practical level, isn't that, isn't that true? Yeah. I, and I think this is wisdom from God that, you know, no book, unless it's 10 trillion pages long, is going to talk about everything. I mean, who knows how long history will continue? Yeah. And so, you know, what we do as biblical scholars and theologians is we make sure people have access to understanding the Bible in its own time, understanding the early church, the patristic period, you know, the creeds. Like, we, we do our best to make sure the next generation is prepared. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, even in higher ed, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but when I was working at George Fox uh, University, I remember sitting in on one of the cabinet meeting kind of things, and they were saying, uh, you know, a, a cabinet used to sit around saying, what's the 10-year plan for higher ed? Mm, mm. And then technology and culture was moving so rapidly, they said, okay, what's a five-year plan? Because yeah. they couldn't see past that. Then they said three-year now they say we can't really plan past two years. Wild. We don't know how rapidly education is going to change. There's no point in investing in, you know, whatever, 7G wireless, you know, whatever right, next right. iteration of, you know, what. So, in, so I think what we're pivoting to now is we're realizing the world is changing too fast. All we can do is just teach students to be smart. <laughs> Mm. rather than to know everything, right? And I guess this takes me back to what I think the Bible is all about. Uh, I have a I have a friend who I work with, his name's Will Kynes, and he argues that it's misleading to call one part of the Bible wisdom literature, like Proverbs, because in fact, all of the Bible yes. is wisdom literature. And wisdom doesn't tell you everything, that's knowledge. Knowledge tells you everything. Wisdom tells you how to live smart, how to live yeah. rightly. Right. Uh, I remember someone defining wisdom as the art of living well. It's an art. And the Bible's teaching you that art. You know, we've talked about in the show before how weird it is that when the Messiah comes to earth, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he chooses to teach in riddles. Like, if I'm Jesus trying to take over the world as the King of the world, I'd want to make it as clear as possible. Yeah. Right. And here, Jesus, I was just with a group of pastors, you know, 20, 30 pastors. And the number one rule of preaching is keep it simple and clear, right? Yep. Yep. And and here Jesus is talking in riddles. And um, I think we, we need to learn something from that, that. The Bible is about wisdom rather than just a mm. whole bunch of facts yeah. to learn to get into heaven. That's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah. When you read 1 Corinthians um Nijay, and you could nerd out on this, but when you read 1 Corinthians, um, Paul, in his letter, he talks about this letter he'd written beforehand. And yes. and and there's you know something like five or six different letters that we don't have that Paul likely right. would have written to the church in Corinth. And there's this like hot debate, right, happening right now um, th that's been happening for a long time. What if we found one of those letters, right? Paul references right. the lost the letter. Letters, the lost letter of Corinth. The and tearful you know, letter. New yeah. Testament scholars in fistfights behind Walmarts all over the world dealing with this question, would we accept the text? Would we right. receive it? And of course the answer is no, because the, the text, it's not the person that was inspired. It's the text that's inspired. And the early church saw actually a fairly minimal number of texts that were included. It's actually astounding how many did not make it. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when you compare um, the new Testament and old Testament with other religious te texts, 
the, actually the Bible is really short small compared small, to yeah. other religious traditions. There's not much there. It's really minimalist. I mean, if you if you're into a minimalist religion, Christianity, the, the Christian Judeo scriptures are actually like a really great option. Yeah. I mean, if you think the Bible's long, you should go read the Egyptian, uh, you know, the Egyptian text. I mean, they just go on and on and on and wax eloquent about all of this completely tertiary stuff, unimportant stuff. Whereas the Bible is just so simple, and we don't we don't add to it. And we don't take away from it. We keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Apparently That's was right. the early council decision. <laughs> keep it simple. But behind that, I think is a beautiful principle that what if actually humans do better with less but better wisdom? Like, like yeah. that we 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 don't need we don't need more. We we are we can be content with what God has spoken. So maybe. That those questions about AI in the Bible and aliens in the Bible, as interesting as there may be, that God is inviting us into some holy ignorance. It's some yeah. holy ignorance. Like it's okay to not have to put all of our stakes down on questions that maybe aren't all that important. It's a little bit like God coming to Job. And when Job comes to the Lord and, and God says, you know, you weren't there when I made the universe. You weren't there yep. when I put uh, the, the creatures in the sea. You weren't there when I made the first sunset. It's okay to embrace the stuff you don't know. It's okay. And yet being simultaneously sold and convinced of the things that are clear in scripture. I want to be really open-handed about aliens and right. really convinced about the resurrection. And discerning the <laughs> two is it's okay to know the difference between those two. Well, you know, um, you know, we we tend to compare faith to doubt. And that does happen in the Bible, but often it's comparing faith to full knowledge. Mm. And if you have full knowledge, then um, it kind of limits the need for faith. And I, I think of Second Corinthians 5 where Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. When we walk by sight, we're focusing on what our eyes can see and our eyes take in a lot of information. But when you're flying blind or you're, you know, you're relying on somebody, then you're really relying on faith. I think about it this way, AJ. I don't know how much, you know, major travel you've done with your family, but if I'm planning a big trip with flights and everything with my family, I'm one of these people where I stress out about every little detail of getting the airport early, making sure everyone has the baggage and everything they need and all this travel. And it's just a ton of work for a parent yes. to plan all this travel to make sure it goes well and the Uber and all of that, or do we have a rental car? I mean, all of that. And I think about when I was a kid and we would go to India, these are massive flights. Sometimes, sometimes 15, 16, 17, 18 hours split up amongst two flights with layovers in London or Paris or Germany. And my mom took three boys on these long journeys and mm -hmm. I didn't worry about a thing. I was like a six year old, not a care in the world. And now I know how much work it was. And this was before mm -hmm. cell phones. This was before everything. And I just think God so often calls us and says, Nije, AJ, you don't worry about the details. <laughs> You just follow me. You just follow me. You don't worry about all the details. You just, you know, you just stand here and don't move. Mm -hmm. And I will worry about getting us from point A to point B. There's so much simplicity in that, but I do kind of feel like that's scripture's way 
um, I was just with a friend talking through like what makes God happy. You know, it's so weird mm-hmm. that the Bible will talk about virtue in terms of what makes God happy. Mm-hmm. You know, the Lord is mm-hmm. well pleased by these things, yeah. right? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Why are we caring about what pleases God? Like, I think God, like a big robot, we just obey him or get like damnation. But the Bible several times talks about what makes God happy. Mm. And as I was talking with this friend, I kept thinking, it's not success. It's actually faithfulness. Faithfulness makes God's happy. God happy because we can't control the outcome. I think about with my kids in sports and when they're in the development age, which is kind of like middle school, high school um, of sports, their coaches say, and I used to think it was just a line, but their coaches say, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it only matters how well you played the game. Yeah, yeah. And it, I think it's actually true. <laughs> um, you'll win and you'll lose. And I, I like watching sports. And it's so funny with a coach afterwards of a major team will say, um, we did everything right to win and we just had bad luck and we lost. And I actually think that happens sometimes where you do everything right and you lose. Yeah. And so success really doesn't tell you whether you played the game well or not. It can yeah. help. But it doesn't always. And so when I think about what God wants from us out of our interaction with the Bible, um, it is, you know, it's as simple as what Eugene Peterson says. It's being formed. Yeah. Right. It's being formed. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the way that I, I've often thought about um, the relationship between knowledge uh, of the head and knowledge of the heart or knowledge of the the self um, Mm. is, is a, a little line from, one of when you and I've quoted him a lot, but Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he has this um, little section in his book, Creation of the Fall. Where I may have referenced this already, but he, he he makes this this stellar little comment that when the man and the woman eat eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, and it's interesting that it has the word knowledge in it, like that that it's it's knowledge of something that at that moment humans traded in relationship or revelation for reason. And they trade in a knowledge of God to a knowledge of or about God, this sense of trading in like yeah. a relationship with God yeah. for now we know this stuff and we can sort of self-mediate what's right and good. Yep. Um, curiosity is not about, autonomy. Yes. The sense of relation or sort of intellectual autonomy. There's nothing wrong with curiosity. In fact, I want to be a curious person and the sufficiency of scripture and, and it's, and it's, it's completeness does not, preclude us from being curious people, but it does invite us to some intellectual minimalism that, that it's okay to just live with what's been provided and let there be some mystery about the rest that I don't have to, I don't have to exist in a constant state of, if I don't get that information, if I don't get that knowledge or clarity around that one thing, I can't exist. That's just not a healthy way to live. Right. I think sufficiency of scripture invites us to a healthy view towards a mystery, not a sloppy mystery. I, I think a lot of Christians use the idea of mystery as like baby, basically a way to baptize, um, uh, baptize bad theology. Well, we're mysterious. And so we embrace mystery. I'm not talking about sloppy theology, but a healthy, holy theology, a healthy, holy uh, mystery that is content with what's been given and lets God be uh, Lord over the rest. Cause I don't know. I don't know when Leviathan was made when he was put in the sea. I'm, I don't know what, you know, I don't know how many aliens live on Mars. If there, if there, if we are truly being um, visited by UFOs, I don't know this stuff, but man alive, do I know how much Jesus loves me and I get to sleep at night with, 
because of that. So the, the sufficiency of scripture, I just think is a really cool way to invite God's people to a sense of ho- holy ignorance, to know yes. what God has revealed and let the rest be at peace. Let it, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to die on every hill um, in order to feel like uh, you've, you have arrived. Um, it, you know, as a, as a dad, I, I think about all the things I learned as a, as a kid. It's funny. There are some things that I don't remember as a child. I do not remember one time. I don't know why, but I don't have one memory of eating a meal as a child with my dad. I don't, I don't know why really? I don't have one. Yeah. I don't have one memory. Um, but the things I do remember that stick out with my dad, like um, fishing the the Boulder River in Montana or um, going on car trips with my dad, like there's things I remember and there's things that I, I forget. And I think as a, as a dad, like the, the kinds of things I want my son to remember are the things that I need to come back to over and over and over again. They're the things that I say to my son every night when he goes to bed. They're the things that we do with regularity. They're the things that we come back to. And I think the fact that the Bible, the 66 books that we have, it's it's not actually that long. And it's it's a it's a beautiful story that we're called to read over and over and over again. And those things that we engage over and over and over again are the things that shape our psychology, our memory, our hearts, and our minds. And rather than needing more memories, I just want to have deeper memories with my son. Yeah. Um, and I think God is is similar. I don't think God needs us to have more information all the time. He wants us to come back to the core stuff over and over and over again. And that's the stuff that shapes us. Um, well, it's what we talk about is the difference between quality time. When we say, I want quality time with my family. Like I spend a lot of time with my family in the morning. I'm yelling at them to get ready or clean up. You know, after school, I'm yelling at them to clean up usually. Um, but that's different than quality time. Like we spend all these minutes together, but they're not memories. They're not special and then there's quality time where, you know, yeah. you're out doing something special or um, you're having an important conversation. And I think God's the same way. You know, as you're talking about the Corinthians, I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Mm-hmm. And so um, Paul even problematizes knowledge. You know, of course, knowledge is good, but there's different kinds of knowledge and there's different motivations. And I feel like when I was a seminary student, I wanted to know everything. Yes, I wanted to have an answer to every question. I never wanted that feeling of being stupid or ignorant. I think I had yeah. maybe a fear. It was both an obsession in a good way, but also a fear that I would be the perfect pastor or the perfect leader if I had an answer to every question. Yes. And Paul actually says... That's a focus on self. There's a point of no return where then it becomes about me and how impressive I am. And the knowledge, you know, that language of puffs up almost like a puffer fish Mm. where you just blow up and there's no room for everybody else, right? That knowledge puffs up is like what we call an inflated ego and there's just no room. And, And the opposite of that, Paul says, is love. Love builds up. So he's talking about a different kind of knowledge. In Galatians, he talks about the difference between knowing, knowing religion, knowing spirituality, and being known by God. And God knows everybody already. So what he's really talking about is revealing yourself to God, right? To be known by God is to expose yourself, your heart, your soul, your deepest self to God. 
how can we spend more time opening up our deep, deepest self to others and to God as the way we spend our time rather than just acquisition, mm. right? Do you have anybody in your family that just collects too much of one thing? Like my daughter's really into houseplants, so we have way too many houseplants, you know, and, um, you know, just collecting too much of one thing, right? That's, that's acquisitiveness. And the, the, what scripture calls us to is, you know, and Bonhoeffer will resonate with this, is self-revelation, opening ourselves up before God and being known, letting ourselves be known by God and experience in person. You'd get into this in a big way, AJ, as a Pentecostal. I just know it. Yes. Yep. Well, I, I, again, for a person like myself who really struggles with accumulation, I'm a theological hoarder. I love, I love just taking in too much knowledge and insight. I love it. And there's just a, a little bit of a correction that I need to receive from Jesus, from the Spirit, from the Father, that um, He's given me enough, and and I don't need the yeah. wisdom of the the sages in order to be content. I have enough in Jesus. I don't need more. That and that's a correction for somebody like me. That's that's yeah. really hard to receive. The sufficient. And we both. I read, am sufficient. We both read a lot, and I'm actually reading less over time because I don't take the time to really think and dwell on what I'm reading. Mm. I just devour it like, you know, hot French fries. Yes. And then I just move on to the next thing. And I'm, you know, part of slow theology, you know, AJ, you know, I are on this journey together is just enjoying. I was just mentioning, I was at this, at this retreat with Tim Mackey and he was teaching on the book of Exodus. And it was so fun to be a student again. I mean, I didn't have to go to this thing, but I just really wanted to. And uh, I was the only professor there. But I just got to sit there and be a kid again in a classroom and just listen to an expert talk slowly through the book of Exodus over three, four days. And I wasn't writing a book. I wasn't preaching a sermon. I wasn't collecting it. I was just there to just enjoy listening hmm. to somebody who's great at something teach us about it. Yes. And um, I feel like that's that's the spirit of sitting and reading scripture is just no agenda. You know, I'm not going to try to read 30 chapters. I've tried to do like the chronological study of the Bible in a year. And, you know, that's fine if you want to make that a goal. But just I've tried to encourage my seminary students, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, just listen and learn and enjoy it. I remember one of my professors, he, he would say to his undergrad students, read the Bible in such a way it surprises you hmm. as if you were reading it for the first time. I love that. I love that because that's not the way I read the Bible. I read the Bible already knowing what it's going to say the next yes. page. Yes. And yet I skip over things mentally and spiritually. So I love your emphasis on the Bible's enough. I think that when you texted me, you're like, let's talk about how the Bible is enough. And its simplicity and its modesty in size says something about the difference between just collecting information yes, and knowing enough to, to journey with God. That's right. That's right. I like that. All right. Till next time, my friend. Can't wait. Blessings, brother.